1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we increase your science interest rates well above the standard RBA base level. I'm Mark West, and in this edition, we'll focus on living to a healthy old age. But first up, here's the news with myself and Charles Willock. When he tired of arguing with climate change sceptics, one programmer wrote a chatbot to do it for him. And this story came from Technology Review. Nigel Leck, a software developer by day, was tired of arguing with anti-science crackpots on Twitter. So like any good programmer, he wrote a script to do it for him. The result is the Twitter chatbot at AI underscore AGW. Its operation is fairly simple. Every five minutes, it searches Twitter for several hundred set phrases that tend to correspond to any of the usual tired arguments about how global warming isn't happening or humans aren't responsible for it. It then spits back at the Twitterer who made the argument a canned response culled from a database of hundreds. The responses are matched to the argument in question. Tweets about how Neptune is warming, just like the Earth, for example, are met with the appropriate links to scientific sources explaining why that hardly constitutes evidence that the source of global warming on Earth is a warming sun. The database begun as a simple collection of responses written by Leck himself, and these days, quite a few of the rejoinders are culled from university source whom Leck says he isn't at liberty to divulge. Like other chatbots, lots of people on the receiving end of its tweets have no idea they're not conversing with a real human being. Is this a Turing test? Some of them have arguments with the chatbot spanning dozens of tweets and many days, says Leck. That's in part because the Twitter bot is smart enough to run through a list of different canned responses when an interlocutor continues to throw the same arguments at it. Leck has even programmed it to debate such esoteric topics as religion which is where the debates humans have with the bot often wind up. If the chatbot actually argues them into a corner, it tends to be two crowds out there, says Leck. There's the guns crowd and the god crowd, and their parting shot will be, God created it that way, or something like that. I don't know how you answer that. The second crowd, Leck says, are sceptics, so unyielding they won't be swayed by any amount of argument. Occasionally, the chatbot turns up a false positive. For example, it has a complete inability to detect sarcasm, so clearly it's American. This proved to be a problem when a record heatwave hit LA last summer, causing innumerable tweets of the form, it's 113 degrees outside, good thing global warming's a myth. Leck always apologises when the chatbot answers someone who isn't actually arguing about the science of climate change, and then subsequently whitelists his or her account. The bot also has a kind of learning algorithm in it that can be trained not to respond to phrases that cause false positives. In the future, Leck would like to expand the bot by giving it the ability to learn new arguments from the Twitter feeds of others who debate climate sceptics, allowing it to argue into the ground an ever-expanding array of anti-science tweeters who are unable or unwilling to look up the proper scientific literature themselves. In a way, what LEC has created is a proactive search engine. It answers Twitter users who aren't even aware of their own ignorance.
2: Science. Evolution is eating at Monsanto's profits. Monsanto are paying farmers to use herbicides sold by their competitors. The reason is that weeds have evolved to resist Monsanto's own glyphosate-based Roundup herbicide. Monsanto's genetically engineered soybean, corn, cotton and other crop seeds are engineered to resist weed killer. They sold both the weeds and their weed killer together with the promise that glyphosate would kill all plants except their genetically modified crops. They are now offering a rebate to pay for the cost of herbicide that will kill the weeds. Farmers across the USA are applying multiple weed-killing poisons to cope with the problem. Poisoning the weeds is supposed to prevent soil erosion caused by the traditional methods of ploughing the weeds.
0: The Union of Concerned Scientists warned that this would be a problem back in the 1970s, that inevitably the weeds would evolve resistance because not all of the weeds would be killed by the herbicide. It's evolution in action. A New
1: South Wales high school has installed secure fingerprint scanners for roll call, which savvy kids may be able to circumvent with sweets from their lunchbox. And this story comes from zdnet.com.au. The system replaces the school's traditional sign-in system with biometric readers that require senior students to have their fingerprints read to verify attendance. Henry Kendall High School on the New South Wales central coast has pitched the system to parents as a convenient way for students to clock in and out of school during their irregular hours. Principal Bob Cox told the ABC that the system was preferred over swipe cards, which students can abuse by signing in for each other. But a litany of fingerprint scanners have fallen victim to bypass bypass methods, many of which are explained publicly in detail on the internet. The hacks could potentially be used by students to make replicas of their own fingerprints, or lift those of others from imprints left on the reader. Japanese cryptographer Tsutumu Matsumoto used gelatin, the ingredient in gummy bears, to forge a replica finger that fooled 11 fingerprint scanners during tests in 2002. Gelatin has virtually the same capacitance as a finger's skin, meaning it can fool scanners designed to detect electrical charges within the human body. Simply form the clear gelatin finger over your own, which lets you hide it as you press your own finger onto the sensor. After the reader lets you in, eat the evidence, BT Chief Technology Officer Bruce Schneider said of the so-called gummy bear attack. Chris Gatford, director of penetration testing firm HackLabs, and there's a job description for you, has foiled biometric fingerprint scanners before. Whether it can be hacked depends on how clever the device is. If it is a reasonable quality, it will look for blood flow and heat, but entry-level models do not. The New South Wales Department of Education said in a statement that the software does not store digital copies of the fingerprints, but creates templates of unique characteristics. This should prevent stored fingerprint images from being stolen, but would not prevent students bypassing the machines. The department said the decision to adopt the technology is up to the school, and participation in the scheme is optional. Fingerprints can be lifted from a variety of surfaces and then scanned, printed and applied to receptacle mediums which are used to trick the scanners. Finnish researcher Ton Vanderpoot hacked a scanner used for checkout payments in a chain of stores based in the Netherlands in 2008, while another Finnish researcher lifted prints from Microsoft's now defunct fingerprint reader. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. Now here's Ian Wolfe with another story from the Singularity Summit about Gregory Benford's anti-ageing company, Genesient.
0: Gregory Benford is best known as a science fiction writer, but that's just a hobby. He's now chairman of anti-ageing company Genesiant. He's a professor of physics at the University of California and a Woodrow Wilson fellow at Cambridge University. He's served as an advisor to the US Department of Energy, to NASA and the White House. As chairman of Genescient, he wants to prevent the diseases of aging to let us all grow old in good health using evolutionary selection and genomics with the new science of networks. We now live twice as long as people in 1900, who lived almost twice as long as people born in 1800. When Shakespeare wrote his plays, 30 was considered old age, and most people were killed by sepsis, which is infection. Today, we're killed mostly by heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, and other diseases of ageing. Gregory Benford is over 60 and wants to live a healthy long life, and his plan should work to benefit all of us. If you have the genes for cancer, then it probably will kill you. The majority of gene carriers die by 80. Two-thirds of people die from cardiovascular heart disease. You can actively avoid heart disease by exercising and not smoking, which also puts off the cancer. But how can you actively research ageing in a quick enough time to benefit from the results? You need to look at very short-lived animals, like fruit flies. Imagine if you took a population of fruit flies. You prevent them from breeding until half of them have died of old age. Then you let those breed. Then you do this again and again for 740 generations. It took Michael Rose 30 years to use selective pressure to weed out the genes that stop fruit flies living to a healthy old age. He's created Methuselah flies, which live five and a half times longer than ordinary fruit flies. In humans, women stop reproducing at around age 40. For men, reproduction lasts longer, but sperm quality goes down. Evolution is done with you once you pass the age of reproduction, so it favours the young, stupid, and quickly reproducing. Gregory Benford points out that the only social mechanism we have now that will increase the human lifespan are universities, because the function of universities is to stop you reproducing until later. As university attendance goes up, you get a longer and more robust lifespan. Michael Rose got the idea for the Methuselah flies from reading Robert Heinlein's Methuselah's Children. In the novel, an organisation in 1800 decides to find people with grandparents who had lived to a healthy old age and give them a cash bonus for reproducing. In 15 to 20 generations, this results in longer-lived people. Unfortunately, it turns out in the real world, you'd need to selectively breed people for hundreds of generations instead of tens of generations. It would take humans 17,000 years of selective breeding to match what the Methuselah flies have achieved in 30 years. In other words, it's not going to happen to you. Every generation of selective breeding works to create new information about the ageing process Michael Rose was using artificial selection as a supercomputer. Gene sequencing is becoming cheaper and better every nine months, which is twice as fast as computers. Moore's Law famously has computer capacity doubling for the same price every 18 months. Gregory Benford has bought the Methuselah flies and sequenced their genome, and continues the selective breeding program. He told us that many people he speaks to say they don't want to live a long time, elderly and wizened and feeble. He points out that the Methuselah flies beat up the other flies, and they have much more sex than the other flies. The Methuselah flies are more robust and reproductively successful. He tells a story of when a few got loose in the room. They had to let them die of old age because they couldn't swat them. They could hear them, but they couldn't catch them because the flies were just too fast. They did die without escaping the room. Humans share 80% of our genes with the flies. Flies were the early demo model for animal life, 600 million years ago. Flies die of diabetes, cardiovascular and neurological problems, which afflict us still. Genescient gathered over 150 bad genetic signals that get passed on down to us and cause us to die. They were able to compare the public domain human genome with the Methuselah fly genome for homologues or similar genes. They focused first on heart disease since it kills most people. They compared Methuselah flies to ordinary fruit flies and compared long-lived humans to short-lived humans and looked closely at the differences. A large variety of human disorders either have a corresponding mutant gene in flies, such as the OPA1 gene that causes blindness and heart disease in both humans and flies, or there are parallels to genes in flies selectively engineered to suffer the same disorder. Flies get age-dependent disorders like heart disease, including fibrillation. In flies, they judge that they're maintaining cognitive, athletic and sexual function by male mating success. They measure heart function by pacing tests and electrocution survival tests. They measure resistance to sepsis by massive bacterial injection protocols. Now, a sidebar on sepsis is that as late as 1940. A man died of sepsis from being pierced by a rose thorn. He was one of the test subjects for penicillin, and they couldn't make penicillin quickly enough to give him a big enough dose to counteract the bacterial infection. The next step is to look for compounds that let you hack in and upregulate the long life genes and downregulate the genes that kill you. If you use food based or traditional medicine based compounds, then the testing for safety has already been done and you can speed up the time to market. You just have to use mundane artificial intelligence, the non-aware kind, to show you the genes that are affected by the compounds and how the proteins they express cascade to affect the genes around them, which express proteins to affect the next lot of genes, and so on in a complicated network. Then you prove efficacy, and you can get a product to market in time to help Gregory Benford and his twin brother live to a healthy old age and expects to have a heart disease prevention nutraceutical, a drug based on food, released before the end of the year. It turns out that much of heart disease prevention is about the heart's ability to repair itself with stem cells. The new product will be called Stem Cell Rx, and they've been able to increase the lifespans of flies and mice in the lab by 16% with this product. The genes that cause the disorders of ageing are similar in fruit flies to humans, so they can use the human genes to screen for substances that safely manipulate the rate of ageing and then test them in short-lived fruit flies because they act on the same genes, performing the same functions as in humans. In addition to already being legislated as safe, food-based nutraceuticals are a more gentle way to retune the genomic network than pharmaceuticals. Flies get Crohn's disease, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, heart disease and bipolar disorder, caused by similar genes to those in humans. It's now an IT problem to use all the genomic data. A fly in the ointment is that flies don't get cancer. Fortunately, there's also been a 30-year Methuselah mouse project, and mice do get cancer. So Genescient are comparing genomes with mice to find substances that downregulate the cancer-causing genes and upregulate the cancer prevention genes. Gregory Benford says the 20th century was about physics, the 21st century will be about biology. Biology is fundamentally an IT-based science studying massively interconnected networks. Selection and genomics are the key technologies that can penetrate bio networks. It's a matter of this 30-year projects of the Methuselah flies and mice maturing at the same time that the genetic sequencing is becoming cheap and that computers are becoming very powerful. Genescient aims to bring together laboratory selection, population genomics and bioinformatics for the oncoming health revolution we all need. I think I'll buy some stock myself. Genescient is negotiating with major pharmaceutical companies around the world to license their genomic results and to find out how our drugs actually work. You can find out more about Genescient at www dot Gregory Benford spoke at the Singularity Summit in Melbourne which you can find out about at www.singinst.org.au These links and more will be up on diffusionradio.com So Mark and Charles what do you think
1: I think this is really interesting. I've heard of plenty of studies looking at things like low-calorie diets and that sort of thing to prevent uh, to prevent death or to extend your your life. But uh, this, these guys are actually looking at the genes. But does this mean that to live forever or to live for a long time, at least over the next hundred or so years, whilst we come to terms with this, we're going to be on a cocktail of drugs? Because there's we're not there's no selection going on here. There's we can't genetically engineer our own genes. We're going to have to be on a cocktail of drugs to upregulate some and downregulate others.
0: Yes and no. He was talking there's people in the longevity business at the moment that are taking hundreds of pills. Really? You've got well if you're looking at the people who really are, want to live a long time and are making every effort like Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, I was takes just thinking him. Hundreds yeah. of pills per day. And the problem is he doesn't really know because it's a black box how they all interact and what they're all really doing. So it's not guaranteed to be the best way to do something. If you know that you have the genes for heart disease, and it looks like two-thirds of us do, then it might make sense to take something that will prevent it happening, particularly if it's not a harsh drug with lots of side effects, but in fact, a tailored one that actually interacts in a precise way without side effects.
1: And may, maybe sometime in, in, in the future when we, we work it out, it become like an immunisation
0: or something, perhaps? You might be able to combine them all in some way that doesn't yeah, cause nasty side effects. When you're born,
1: you just get this thing and you prevent heart heart attacks into the future.
0: I think you actually, it's not like an immunisation. I think you actually have to keep on taking the stuff. It's In this case, it, it sounds like they're deriving things from food or from traditional medicine. So like a medication, you'd have to be on a maintenance thing. But then you have to be on food all the, and air and water all the time too. So it's not that arduous if if you want to do something at birth that's a whole extra level of technology above what we have right now
2: I was thinking while you were while you're talking there I was thinking that's one hell of a way to get a buzz out of flies and <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> Jack award goes to yeah. but it did raise the interesting question about where would one invest one's money and so for example if one started to think in terms of maybe living 140 years and started marrying at the age of 20, then that's a long time to be with one partner, assuming that they live that long. The question is, would it then become the issue of partner swapping, would that be coming back in style? Because that seems like a a, a sensible thing to do if you're wanting to maximise the enjoyment out of life. Hello to my friend out there. And. So the question is, what does it favour in terms of investment? So investment might be, for example, in the marriage industry, but more seriously, it might be in something like education, if one looks at Maslow's hierarchy and finds that... uh, I guess the question that I'm really interested in is those questions that will be asked on um, on the couch or in the bed, and they might start off something like this. Darling, we need to talk. And what is your preferred... Into
0: betrothal distance. So, to translate for those of you who speak English, and what he was asking was how far apart between your marriages should you be with the next partner and how do you deal with relationships and life in general when you live a lot longer than people did in history? Yeah,
2: and I guess the other thing is, in a, in a statistical sense, you have things like how far apart are different classes and you might talk in terms of things like mahalanimous distance and things like that. I'm just Starting, you heard it it here first uh, on this program,
0: right? Your your promotion of uh, polyamory.
2: The the, well, no, the inter. Sorry,
0: polysexuality, not polyamory. You're talking about just multiple swing partners, not multiple
2: loves. No, I'm I'm talking about interbetrothal distance, the fundamental measure of of how you space your partnerships throughout life.
0: I'm not sure this is completely (laughs) connected (laughs) to living a healthy old age.
1: No, although, I mean, the, the Methuselah flies were having a lot of sex, weren't they?
0: They were, but flies don't tend to get married.
1: Right, yeah, this is the thing.
0: Not that I've heard.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, so beyond... The, the mice, on the
0: other hand. <laughs> <laughs>
2: they, they, part. What is their partnering characteristics, do you know?
0: Mice?
2: Hmm. Uh, my, mice, uh,
1: I
0: think, believe in free love.
1: Mm, I believe say so. They're generally rodents. I think they probably believe in free love. Except the, the voles. What are the voles that, uh, the that voles, partner for life? Yes. Yeah. The
0: voles are unusual because they partner for Well, one species, one species of them, of them yeah. partners for life because they've got the oxytocin receptors. Mm, mm. And the others don't.
2: Right. And I, I guess the other trend that I would be quite interesting is would it favour the cougars, <laughs> the duodecadals, or the tridecadal marriers?
0: I think it's very simple that. If you live a long time and you don't look old, then age may become less of a problem in relationships. People will adjust to there being big differences without it being a problem. Or it may be that people can't cope with really young people or really, you know, the really old might not be able to cope with the really old vice versa. And maybe we just don't judge people as much. We don't care. And you just have relationships with people you like. Hmm.
1: But this is, I mean, that sort of stuff's a long way in the future. I mean, over the next few decades, as we increase the average age by a year, we just creep up. 80-year-olds uh, are still going to look 80.
0: Ah, well, that's where it's not entirely correct. There's a man in the UK who suffered from a bizarre series of illnesses that, after the, the last lot of treatment for them, looked enormously younger, to the point that he is now looks younger than his adult sons.
1: That's that's fascinating. So what, been- they don't
0: know exactly how and which, how it all interacted together. These series of illnesses. I mean, they're studying him, mm. but the series of illnesses and the series of medicines combined. Basically, there was some shrinkage when he lost a lot of weight of skin, which tightened it. There was a whole lot of other things going. He had a skin skin problem, and it had to grow back. Um, they're not sure of exactly all the whole what happened with all the things that caused this result. But the result is that he looks younger. Younger than his sons, and this means that older people could look younger if we understood the process.
2: So, are you suggesting then that every 20 years one does a complete skin graft, undoes the zipper at the back, peels off, and <laughs> one can look young again? Well, you,
0: I don't want you to give away your beauty secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so it's, I find it interesting that we are talking here about not dying too young, not being knocked off by a heart attack not being knocked off by an infection, uh, not being knocked off by cancer or Alzheimer's, and the major concern is that you might get sick of your wife.
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is true. You I was just outside? going to say something about arthritis in the legs. In the case of flies, I think you've got a better chance with human beings. Of? Well, you know, flies have got six legs and humans have got two. <laughs>
0: <weird>. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.
1: And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have any feedback, comments or suggestions, if you're 140 years old and would like to say hi over this newfangled internet, or if you're a director of a penetration testing company, get in touch at diffusion at 2 That's diffusion at 2 com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe and Charles Willock. Diffusion has been produced by Ian in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Mark West. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.